congregation and praise team. Wow, what amazing worship. It's worth sitting through my preaching just to hear that sort of music, I'm telling you. <laughs> Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'll be preaching an eight-part sermon series from the book of Ephesians. Give you a few heads up. First of all, the great Protestant reformer, John Calvin, preached through Ephesians in 49 sermons. There was one Puritan preacher of some note back in the 1600s who spent eight years in the book of Ephesians. I'm preaching eight sermons. Now, they're all going to be three hours long, but there's, no, I'm teasing. We're, uh, we're somebody said amen. God bless you. Uh, there's an amazing story of God's grace in Ephesians. And Ephesians is about God's amazing grace and how God transforms lives. So part of this sermon series, one week I'm taking off, and Pastor Geronimo from our Hispanic congregation will be sharing his testimony. And both service, both groups will be worshiping together, and we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. You've had a Hispanic congregation for nine years, and you've never shared the Lord's Supper together. But that Sunday, Pastor Geronimo and I are sharing the pulpit, and the sermon is his. He's going to preach in Spanish and in English, and he's going to share... His story of how Jesus Christ changed his life. And it is a dramatic testimony. I'm getting, uh, I'll get worked up. I cry when I preach. I cry when I pray. So when I cry when I talk about these things. But it's Pastor Geronimo is preaching on Sunday the 29th. More than that, we're going to have a Cinco de Mayo celebration in the church. Now, I don't know all the details yet, but we're going to have one. And it's, it's going to be the most sober Cinco de Mayo celebration in Wichita. Can I get an Amen. amen. But we're going to have fun, right? We're going to have a great time, and it's going to be awesome. Ephesians chapter 1. Please forgive me. I grew up with the King James, and there are parts of my life that are embedded in the King James. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14 says this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be our God and Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he has, wherein he hath bestowed upon us, uh, some translations say he has lavished on us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after his own good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God might gather together in one all things in, in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom... We also have obtained an inheritance, 
being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, the purchased price of the redemption to the praise of his glory. Wow. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. When I was in fifth grade, I suffered one of the most awkward and, and uncomfortable events in my life. It occurred in P.E., at Hiram Elementary School in Paulding County, Georgia. It was the fall of 1977, as I recall. Some evil, diabolical person at the Department of Education in the state of Georgia had determined that part of the curriculum for young students in Georgia included a bit of cultural awareness. Now, what cultural awareness and sensitivity meant to them in 1977 in Georgia is we had to learn to square dance in P.E., it was horrid. One of the most, I, my therapist says that a few more months of Prozac and I'll be over it. But the point being, it was horrid. And the worst part of square dancing in PE in fifth grade in Hiram Elementary School was this. You had to pair up boy, girl, boy, girl. And there's no good way to do that. If the teacher doesn't assign you, that means you have to go around asking someone, will you be my partner in square dancing? And if everyone says no, then you're left the odd man out, and that feels horrible. But what actually happened was on one day, Mrs. Perrin, my PE teacher, paired us up. She said, you're with him, you're with her, you're with him, you're with her. And so she paired me with this very, very nice girl who I thought was very pretty, and her name was Rochelle Kemp. And I just thought she was pretty and nice. She was also about four inches taller than me at that time. And I'll never forget, look at the, even as I'm preaching to you now, I can see the look in her eyes as she looked down at me in disgust and just complete disdain. And if a word, if a, a stare can Communicate a thousand words. She seemed to be saying to me this as she looked at me glaringly. I will endure this under protest, but as soon as this class is over, you are never to touch me again. That's what I felt like. It was horrible. Well, why do you hate little experiences like that when you're a child? Because if you're not chosen, it leaves you feeling very, very awkward. And we can joke about uh, things like that. Maybe uh, you... I'll give you an example of what it feels like not to be chosen. This morning in service, something amazing happened that I don't know if I've ever seen happen in a Baptist church, but it happened here in the service. You said someone spoke in tongues. No, that was not it. We did not have that. Um, but what I would say is that we sang the third verse of a Baptist hymn. <laughs> Brother Mark led us in the third verse of uh, wonderful this song about grace. We sang the third verse. Now, usually, I would rather be a tick on a hound dog than the third verse of a Baptist hymn because they never get sung in church, but we did it this morning. And honestly, maybe your life feels like that way. You feel like you're the third verse of a hymn and nobody ever chooses you. And you never get any attention. The young man is looking for a job and it's hard to find jobs and sends his resume out over and over and over again and gets rejection after rejection after rejection, and he says, nobody chose me. 
and a senior adult who's a widow or a widower sits home again at another lonely day and staring at the window at snow in April, Lord help us, and, and thinks, well, another day went by and nobody chose to call me, another day of lonely. Young girl sits by the phone, it's prom season, and she's waiting for the phone call from that boy to give her a call and ask her to the prom, and the call never comes, and she doesn't get chosen. Someone is a single, uh, single adult, and they finally go out on one of the dating websites, and they submit their profile, and they hope that someone's going to identify them as a person they'd like to, to get to know and perhaps date, and the notification never comes, and they feel like, I've not been chosen. I've not been chosen. I've not been chosen. Well, the overarching theme of the book of, Galatia, book of Ephesians is this, God's saving grace. That's the theme for our series. And in Ephesians chapter 1, a passage that is one of the richest veins of theology you will ever find in the Bible, the Apostle Paul drives home that you are chosen and you are forgiven. The world may have ignored you. The world may have cast you aside as unimportant. But in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 it says, Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And in Ephesians chapter 1 it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You are chosen and you are forgiven. And in this passage of scripture, this deep, deep vein of truth we're going to learn four truths, four central ideas about what it means to be chosen and forgiven. I, I have never preached from Ephesians 1, been preaching for 30 years. And it is to my detriment. But here it is, what we're going to learn today. Write these down. We're going to have four truths. The world is governed by sovereign God, not random time and chance. Secondly, we're going to see that God has chosen a people for himself. Third, we're going to see that God offers forgiveness for broken people. And fourth, we're going to see that Scripture holds the truths of predestination and human responsibility in tension. Let's talk about the first one. This world is governed by sovereign God, not by random time and chance. Did you see it? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it said, did you catch what it said there? It says, according as he hath chosen us in him when, before when? I like an interactive congregation. Before when? Before the foundation of the world. That is eternity. In eternity past, God is not bound by time. You and I are limited by time. Time catches up with all of us. Some of you this morning with this crazy weather in April, you're arguing with Arthur. You know who Arthur is, Arthritis. He's a rude neighbor, and time is caught up with you. We're trapped in time, and we are confined by time. God is not confined or trapped by time. God is eternal. You can go as far as you want in eternity past, and you will never reach a point when God did not exist. You can go as far as you want in eternity future, and you will find never find a time when God does not exist. Well, we see some of this in Moses' interaction with God in Exodus chapter 3. Do you remember at the burning bush when Moses said, what is your name? And what did God say? I am that I, I just am that I am. The Hebrew is really rather interesting. The Hebrew, it sort of says something like, I be that I be, but that's bad English grammar. And we don't say it that way, but it's just, I am that I am. He just exists. A, God did not say, I was that I was. He did not say, I will be what I will be. He said, I am that I am. He 
just exist. This whole idea of eternity is frustrating. We live in a world where the most is frustrating to secular people. They don't like the idea of eternity. They bump their head up on eternity. And if you're a secular atheist, you have a major problem with time and where, where was the universe? What was going on before uh, the purported Big Bang? The most common theory of cosmology in the world today is some form of the Big Bang model. Postulates that around 15 billion years ago, give a couple of billion, the universe was condensed into one spot called a point of singularity. Typically, the theory says a vacuum fluctuation initiated a very hot Big Bang, and ever since then, the universe has been expanding and cooling and expanding and cooling and expanding and cooling. But the question is, even if one postulates that theory, what was there before the Big Bang? Well, some secular people have said, well, the universe is like this giant rubber band. It expands, and then it contracts. It expands, and then it contracts. And that's all you have, just raw matter. Well, even French existential atheist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, I've always imagined French philosophers sitting by the Seine River smoking a, a unfiltered Marlboro cigarettes, right? And they're just sitting down there by the same truth. I stomp on truth. And they're stomping these things out. Well, that's Jean-Paul. Some of you never grew up with people smoking unfiltered Marlboros, but the, that's what I, I imagine Jean-Paul Sartre being like. And so that he said, even he said, the greatest philosophical problem is why is something here as opposed to nothing being here? Well, the Bible tells us the answer why is something here. It's the will of God in eternity past you are aware of the famous astrophysicist Carl Sagan, who died a number of years ago. He helped produce the PBS series, The Cosmos, in 1980, my childhood. I was in, I think, sixth grade when this came out. And he started that series, The Cosmos, by saying this, a very famous line. The cosmos is all that is, or was, or ever will be. And in another setting, he added this, that he described God as, quote, an oversized white male with a flowing beard who sits in the sky, and he didn't need such things. Radical atheism. And so such a view says that your life, you're just caught up in a bunch of random time and a chance and events that you have nothing to do with, and it's just meaningless. It's purposeless. I mean, it's... Uh, there's no meaning or purpose or intent to life whatsoever. And perhaps you feel that way. Someone's told you that. And you're thinking, well, is there any reason to my life? Is there any purpose? But the Bible says in Ephesians 1.4, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Regardless of what you think about the foundation of the world, here's what the Bible says. Before there ever was a universe, God already had you in mind. In his infinite wisdom, the sovereign God of the universe. You know, to a degree, I agree with Carl Sagan to a degree. Hold on, let me explain. If you think of God as an overgrown white male with a long flowing beard, some sort of glorified grandpa, well, I agree, that sort of God does not exist. I'll tell you what God is like. Daniel chapter 7 says, He's the ancient of days, that rivers of fire flow from his throne. What does Isaiah chapter 6 say? He's holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. He radiates and he sinuates with holiness and power and authority. And he's just not like me or you, just a little bit bigger. You remember that theologian from Oklahoma named Garth Brooks? He had that song, some of you know, I thank God for unanswered prayers. Just remember when you're talking to who? 
Uh, more of y'all listen to country music than you're willing to admit. Oh, I don't listen to country music, preacher. It's always on K-Love. I'm always, no, no. <laughs> Just remember when you're talking to the man upstairs. Listen, God is not the man upstairs. God is God. He is the great I am. And he spoke in this universe came. It's nothing to him. Listen, speaking the universe into existence was no more work for God than for you and I to swat a mosquito. He's God. And he chose you. He reigns and he rules. Robert Jastrow was a self-profaned, proclaimed agnostic astrophysicist. Died a few years back. And he wrote on these things of origins, and he kept bumping up on this idea of eternity and what was there before the Big Bang, and he was cranking around on these things. And finally, he made this statement, very famous statement. Robert Jastrow, Ph.D., astrophysicist. Here's what he said. Now, he's an agnostic. He's not a believer. Listen, though. He said, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. I'm reminded of what one person said. When you think about random time and chance, and that's all your life is, someone described it this way. First, I was an amoeba beginning to begin. Then I was a tadpole with my tail all tucked in. Then I was a monkey in a banyan tree. Now I am a professor with a PhD. And that's how some people see life. It's not that way at all. Paul, Paul, do you see the words that Paul piles up in this passage? Chosen before the foundation of the world. Predestinated according to the good pleasure. God's got his own good pleasure. Did you catch it down there in verse 9? According to his own purpose, which he's purposed within himself. Did you catch it in verse 11? Where it said, according to the purpose of him who worketh all things according to the counsel of his own will. God's got his own will. Now, we have our will. We, we think we know how things should work out. God, I want things this way. And God, this is my morning prayer informing you how you should run the universe today. And God has a purpose within himself. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray, what? Not my will be done, but God reigns and he rules. I was a member of Lenexa Baptist Church for 13 years. My pastor, Steve Dighton, said many times, and I cannot agree more, God does what he pleases, and he's pleased with what he does. He reigns and he rules. The universe is ruled by sovereign God, not random time and chance. And secondly, within light of that, ruling and reigning of God not only would we see that it's not ruled by random time and chance but by God himself it is that secondly God has chosen a people for himself and we must deal with the word predestinate it's in the Bible listen carefully John Calvin didn't come up with predestination Augustine did not come up with predestination R.C. Sproul didn't come up with predestination the Presbyterians don't have a lock on predestination it is in the Bible Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, but I have to help you out understand something. I quoted from the King James. I dream in the King's English. I mean, when Lisa comes out for a date and she's wearing something nice, I tell her she looketh good. I mean, so I'm, I'm always, but I need to show you something. Would you look, you are aware that the chapter and verse divisions are not original to the text. If you didn't know that, 
the chapter and verse divisions which help us navigate the Bible and for which I'm infinitely grateful, but they came about about 1,200 years after the time the Bible was written. And sometimes they got the chapter and verse divisions right. Sometimes they did not. Greek is amazing. The original Greek, they wrote in all capital letters with no spaces between the words. So I want you to look at, in your Bible at the end of verse 4. Are you looking at the end of verse 4? Somebody say, I got it. All right. Do you see the last two words in verse 4? Do you see them? The last two words in verse 4 are what? In love. Okay. The King James, which I quoted, attaches that little prepositional phrase, in love, to what comes before. And it says... Uh, that we might uh, be conformed to, uh, um, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that uh, we might be holy and blameless without him, uh, before him in love, before him in love. And so it attaches that little phrase, in love, back to what comes before. And it's saying, basically, as we're living a holy life, we should do that in a loving way. That's really not the right division of the verse. If you have an ESV or the New American Standard or the NIV, it gets it right. And it attaches that little prepositional phrase. Are you looking at it at the end of verse 4? Do you see it? What does it say? In what? All right. It actually attaches to what follows in verse 5. So it should read this way. In love, he predestinated us unto the adoption of children. Predestination is not some random, capricious uh, act by God where he has some sort of holy dice. He's just saying, oh, let's see who goes to heaven and hell. That'll be fun. And throws that down. Says, oh, well, some will. So, oh, there you go. No, but in what he predestinated us in what? In, in love. The word predestinated occurs six times in the Bible. Occurs once in Acts. Occurs once in 2 Corinthians. Twice in Romans. Twice in Ephesians. It is a compound word in Greek. Proarizo comes from two words. The word pro, which is to means before or beforehand, and orizo, which means to determine. And so it taken together, it means to determine beforehand. And the, the part of that word orizo is very interesting. It's where we get our word horizon from. Orizo, horizon, you can hear it. And um, here's the idea. You and I have this limited horizon. Uh, we can't see more than just a few. Uh, if you drive, I drive down through the Flint Hills when I come here from Kansas City. Some of the most spectacular, beautiful scenery in America is that drive between Emporia and um, uh, Cassidy. Some of the most spectacularly boring scenery in America is between Eldorado and Wichita. But nonetheless, it, you, you, you celebrate what you can find. But um, I'm sorry, Eldorado is a wonderful town. God bless you if you're from Eldorado. I hope you come back. We need you. But um, the, <laughs> but the point being. Even at uh, some great expanse across the Flint Hills of Kansas, there's a limit to my horizon, right? I can't see but so far. And you can't tell what I'm, some of you are wondering what I'm going to do in the next minute. And it's, uh, when is this going to be done? And uh, don't you know that old Chicago was calling me and I'm ready to go? And so, but you don't know what's coming the next minute. And our horizon is so very limited when it comes to physical things like looking across the beautiful landscape of the Flint Hills of Kansas. But... But think about time. We can't see ahead one second. If we could, all of us would be multimillionaires in the stock market, right? But we can't. But God, it's pro-orizzo, predestined. He looks far beyond. He is omniscient, and part of his omniscience is foreknowledge. He knows, and he foreordains, predestined. We cannot avoid the word. It's in the Bible. 
Six times it occurs in this text of Holy Scripture. But what I want to stress to you is that we are predestined in love. Now, let me explain to you what predestination means by telling you what it does not mean. There's all sorts of theories of determinism that secular people have. Some of you learned them in college or high school or something like that. Do you remember B.F. Skinner, behavioralism? We're all just conditioned to certain responses, and we're just kind of mindless robots that have been conditioned to act in a certain way, and you can't help anything you're doing. The Bible doesn't mean that sort of determinism, although I grant that if somebody starts cooking barbecue, I'm kind of predetermined to eat some. But nonetheless, it's... Uh, but there's... We don't mean some sort of godless behavioralism. Freud suggested that you're being driven on by psychological urges from poor potty training as a child, and you can't help anything, and you, all these repressed urges, and, and you don't know what you, and that's what's driving you. Lady Gaga just says you're born this way, right? And so um, you, you got all these issues of determinism from a secular view. That's not what, none of that's what the Bible means. All of that is rubbish from godless thinking. It means sovereign, infinitely wise, holy, good God has a plan. He is pleased with what he does. He has predestined. He has chosen a people for himself. You say, I chose Jesus. Yes, you do. And when you chose Jesus, what you discovered is God already chose you way before you chose him. Before the foundation of the world, we cannot escape it. So we have... The idea that sovereign God reigns and rules, not random time and chance. We have in this text the truth that God has chosen a people for himself. Third, God offers forgiveness to broken people. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 7. In whom we have redemption. Look at that word redemption, will you? That word redemption was used outside of the Bible in the ancient world to refer to buying a slave out of slavery. You would redeem someone out of slavery. So in the Roman Empire, someone's a slave. You get enough money, you could buy them out of slavery, the redemption price, and they are no longer a slave because of the price you paid. Does that make sense? The same word was also used to refer to cities which were conquered by armies, and these armies would hold the cities hostage until the country they conquered had given them money to set them free. So you get the idea. That word redemption is all about people who are in slavery, who have been in chains, and a price is paid, and they are set free. And the text tells us what the price was because it says, in whom we have redemption through his what? His blood. That is the language of atonement. That's the language of the cross. And Jesus Christ paid your penalty, and then it defines what redemption is all about because it uses an, a positive phrase defining redemption. It says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. What's the next phrase? The what? Forgiveness of sins. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That word forgiveness uh, was used in the ancient literature to describe someone whose sentence, as in a legal sentence, a jail sentence was canceled. And we have a hard time wrapping our minds around God's forgiveness because you and I have told people we forgive you and we didn't really mean it. And we say, well, we forgive you. I just, you better hope I don't see you in a crosswalk with my car because, you know, I might run you down. So that's how we do forgiveness. That's not God. When God says he forgives you, God means it. He means it. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The idea of redemption is rooted deep in the book of Exodus in the Bible. 
You remember the story. They leave Pharaoh. They get to the Red Sea. The Red Sea's in front of them. Pharaoh's army is behind them. They feel they are trapped. They've been in slavery for 400 years. There's no way out. This is a hopeless situation. But overnight, God cut a highway through the Red Sea. God protected them from Pharaoh's army. And just to add a little bit to the the might of his power, he takes out Pharaoh's army in the sea the next morning. And what seemed like a hopeless situation, God came in and cut a highway and they got out. And that's grace. What does Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 say? You look at it again. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to what? The riches of his grace. That word grace means unmerited favor. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. God in his mercy gave it. He flows grace. And just as surely as the children of Israel trapped at the Red Sea and God came down and set them free, you and I were trapped in sin. You and I had no way out. We didn't have the ability to pay for our own sin. There was no way we could ever atone for the sins we committed on our sin nature. The people we'd harmed and we'd hurt and our life seemed hopeless, But, but, but God Almighty came down out of eternity into time, stepped into our heart, changed us and gave us a new birth and forgave us and cut the highway to holiness to heaven for us. What good news there is in the gospel. My word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He forgives sins and he'll forgive your sins. I don't know what you brought to church this morning. I can't see the baggage on your back and the pain and the heartache and the guilt that you may feel. And I don't know how deep the sin is, but I can tell you the river of God's grace runs deeper. And there's grace for you and forgiveness for you. This God who rules and reigns the universe, who's choosing a people for himself, predestined, and all that that word means offers forgiveness to broken people. What a powerful message of good news. June 19th, 1865 was one of the most important days in American history. It is now called Juneteenth by the African-American community. June 19th, 1865. That day was important because it was on June 19th, 1865 that the emancipation of slaves was announced in Texas. Let me explain what happened. President Lincoln uh, signed the Emancipation Proclamation on September 22, 1862, but the word hadn't gotten to Texas. They're a Confederate state. And then General Lee had surrendered to the Union Army on April 9, 1865, but the word hadn't got to Texas yet. Finally, on June 18th, a, a battalion of Union soldiers landed in Galveston Harbor, and on June 19th, from the veranda of what's now known as Ashton Villa in Galveston, a beautiful site if you ever get to go there, Major General Gordon Granger stood on the veranda of the Ashton Villa and announced to a gathered crowd two things. He said, first of all, the war is over and the South is defeated. We have victory. The second thing he announced is all the slaves are free. Now listen carefully. Their victory and their emancipation had already occurred years before. You understand that? The Emancipation Proclamation is 1862. They hadn't heard. The war had been over for over two months. 
They hadn't heard. Here, listen, but someone proclaimed to them and announced to them that redemption had come and they were free. Many of you are still in slavery to sin and to Satan and to your own flesh. And the blood of Jesus has already paid the price for your sin. And I am announcing emancipation to you this morning. That the price has already been paid. That the debt's already been paid. There is freedom in the name of Jesus. And I don't know what chains have bound you. And I don't know what sin has racked your life. But I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is the chain breaker. He's the emancipator. And he'll set you free. There's good news in the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My word. He has good news for broken people. He reigns and rules, not, so, not random time and chance. He's chosen a people for himself. He offers forgiveness to broken people. And then finally, Scripture holds the truths of predestination and human responsibility in tension. We have stressed the word predestination occurs twice in this text. But I would point out to you verse 12. Don't miss verse 12. Notice what it says. Paul says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now, wait a minute. He's talked about God's choosing us, and he's talked about predestination. Now he talks about, hey, I, Paul, I'm one of the Jews that trusted in Christ. And then in verse 13, he says, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom you also believed. Do you see the tension there? On one hand, we have predestination. We have God's election and choosing. On the other hand, you have human responsibility to trust and to believe. They must be held in tension. Uh, how do we reconcile such things? We preach them both as true. Election is consistent with the free agency of man. Human responsibility and divine predestination are so intertwined and all the threads are so intertwined that this side of glory, we're never going to untease all of it. I teach at a seminary and you are aware that seminarians like to talk about such things, right? Your cooperative program of money has funded endless hours of coffee shop conversations. I think I actually solved the, I think I actually solved the problem one time, but I forgot to take notes at the meeting. I wish I'd done that. But um, so there was these group of seminarians arguing one day. Does God choose? Does man choose? And as happens when preachers talk about about though the the sides are formed and the groups are formed and they get into two groups and this guy's parts over here and they say no no man chooses it's not predestination this guy's over there, no 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 it's predestination it's not you and so they separated into two parts and two sides of the coffee shop not talking to each other one poor guy's like the rest of us saying well you know I'll tell you the truth both of them sound like they got some truth in them I just don't know which one, but if I had to guess, I think these guys over here talking about predestination, that sounds kind of right to me. I'll go over to them. So the student walks over to that group, and they said, what are you doing here? He said, well, I listened to what you had to say, and I decided I think you guys are right. You can't decide to come over here. You belong with that group over there. So he said, okay, and he walks over to the other group on the other side of the coffee shop, and they said, what are you doing here? He said, well, those guys over there told me to come over here. No, no, you, you have to decide to come over here. Um, you see the problem the man was in, the dilemma. Um, i just tell you, the width of a railroad track in the United States is four feet, eight and a half inches. That's the gauge of a standard railroad track. There's wider in there, standard gauge, four feet, eight and a half inches. And if at any point that gauge gets wider, are narrower if the track warps if the ties 
the railroad ties rotten and the track flexes or the, the bed underneath it caves away and they get wider and narrow apart. You know what's going to happen. You're going to have a train wreck, right? Okay, listen carefully in your theology. If you overemphasize either God's choosing or you overemphasize man's choosing and you don't hold them in tension, your, your theology is going to have a train wreck. We have to keep them in tension. Listen, we live in a world full of all sorts of mysteries. I am not a physicist, but I've heard of something called the wave-particle duality. What that means is a photon of light has properties of a wave and it has properties of a particle, but it acts like both and it shouldn't. But if you deny it, your physics gets all messed up. Uh, if, if God designed the world that we live in with lights and stuff like that, that, that's a mystery that we don't understand, why should we be surprised at something infinitely more complex like a sovereign God ruling over time and people? Why should we be surprised at these things? Let me give you another example. Uh, Jesus Christ. The Bible says he is what? Is, does the Bible say he's God or does the Bible say he's man? What's the answer? It's both. He's completely God and completely man. How did God do that? I don't know. But I can tell you John chapter 1 makes it explicitly clear. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was. And then in verse 14 it says the Word became. He's completely God. He's completely man. How's God do that? I don't know. But I can tell you it's true. Man's choosing and God's choosing, they're both true. I can tell you this, though. This, you say, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? What if I'm not elect? Listen, if you're hearing the gospel, you can just assume God wants to choose you. If you're hearing the gospel, you just write it down. If the Holy Spirit's dealing with your heart right now about your need for Christ, you just need to assume that God wants you to be part of the elect and God wants you. Listen, this side of heaven, the call from glory is this. Whosoever will may come, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And when we get to heaven and we sing praises to the Lamb around the great white throne, you know what we're going to sing? Elect from the foundation of the world. Glory. Here's the point. You've been chosen by God. This world may have thought nothing of you. God chooses a people for himself. Well, how do you bring all these things together? I'm going to attempt to bring all these together in a story. Lady's name is Stephanie Fast. Stephanie Fast is a um, Korean. She was born... And during the Korean War, to a Korean mother and to an American father. And 1952, 53, 54, and 55 are really, really tough times in Korea. Her mother abandoned her. Long story, but her mother put her on a train and said, I'm sending you to some family members in another town. They'll meet you when you get off the train. And as a little girl, like three or four years old, she got off the train and um, there was no one there. Her mother had abandoned her. She lives on the street as best she can. She's a street urchin, and she has um, to do everything she can to survive. She steals, and at some point, she loses her name. She doesn't remember her name anymore. But because she was part Korean and part American, she was a biracial child, do you know that sometimes all around the world, people say horribly, ungodly, and vile, and devilish things about children from two races? You're aware of that? It's godless sin. Well, there's a word in Korean for kids who are half Korean and half English. And Stephanie Fast, in her own testimony, says, I lost my name. I didn't know what it was. They simply called me, and here's the Korean word, Tugi. 
That's how she pronounces it, Tugi, T-O-O-G-E-E in English, Tugi, and it's a put-down. And so she'd even lost her name. She had no identity. All she was was when people saw her, they quit. No, didn't he have a name? They just looked at her and said, oh, Tugi. That's how they called her. She has no food. She's living at one point in a, a uh, garbage dump as a seven, little, seven, eight-year-old girl trying to fend for herself with gangs of other children who've been abandoned. She eventually uh, gets terribly, terribly sick and almost dies. She passes out in the street of and um, her life is ebbing and ebbing away from her. And she's about to die when some workers from a Christian ministry called World Vision happened to find her passed out in the street. And they took her in and they loved her. And they began to nurse her back to health. And she began to uh, heal from her disease and her sickness. And they put her in an orphanage. She said by her own account that she was covered with lice uh, worms had infested her and her sometimes so bad that they would come up in her throat and they're working to get rid of these intestinal worms and working to get rid of the lice. And her, she said, my body was covered with boils. She had spent so much time uh, just on the streets that dirt was actually driven into almost kind of like a semi-tattooed into her elbows and her knees, just dirt that she couldn't get out. And so she's in an orphanage. And one day, some American couple, an American couple living in Korea came to the orphanage to, to find a baby. And they saw what we now know as Stephanie, this little girl. And they began to talk to her and chat with her. And she was so angry at them, she spit on them. Her first response to these people who were going to adopt her is she spit on them. This was a couple called the Merwins. Well, they adopted her, even after her spitting on them. They gave her a home, and they gave her the name Stephanie. She was no longer Tugi. Now she's Stephanie. But her mind was so confused, she thought that she was being purchased as a servant, that they're going to take her to the house, and she's going to work for them, and she's going to do stuff for them, and this is how she's going to pay off her debt. And so she gets to the house, and she says, okay, I'm a little 8-year-old girl, and I'm waiting. When are they going to put me to work out and doing all this sort of stuff? And it never happens. They tuck me into bed every night. They hug me. They give me clothes. They buy me things. They let me play with other children. She said, I didn't understand any of this. And I kept waiting. When's the other shoe going to drop? When do I have to start working? So one day, she's out down the hill from her house, playing with another little Korean friend. And her Korean friend said, this is Stephanie's own story. Her Korean friend said something very interesting. Her Korean friend said, you know, you smell like an American. <laughs> so said, oh, I'm not American. She said, oh, yes, you are. You're that family's daughter. And she said, I'm not their daughter. What do you mean? She said, yeah, you're their daughter. She said, no, I'm not. I'm, I said, I don't understand. And Stephanie said, I told my little friend, I don't understand these people. You're talking about me being their daughter. I keep expecting to have to go to work, and they don't make me get there. It's really weird. I don't understand. When am I supposed to go to work for these people? And her little playmate said, Stephanie, you are their daughter. She said, what do you mean? And in Korean, she looked at her and said very slowly, you are their daughter. And suddenly it began to sink in on her. And this little girl said, it's like, it astonished me. I'd never thought of it. I'd never dreamed of it. And she started running up the hill to their house saying, I'm their daughter. I'm their daughter. That's why they haven't abused me. That's why they've loved me. That's, I'm their daughter. I'm their daughter. She ran into this home and ran up to her mother and began to sob in Korean. I'm your daughter. I'm your daughter. I'm your daughter. And her mother hugged her. Yes, you're my daughter. You're my daughter. Do you see the beauty? Because... Do you understand what it says in Ephesians 1 verse 5? It says, In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children. 
Do you know what adoption and predestination have in common? They're both about choice. When you adopt a child, you have chosen that child. You see the picture? And what a beautiful picture. She ran to her, I'm your daughter. I'm your daughter. I'm your daughter. And some of you have been struggling for years. You trusted Christ years ago. I mean, years ago you believed in Jesus. And you really wondered if your sin has been forgiven. And this morning you need to run up in the arms of the Father and say, I'm your daughter. I'm your daughter. I'm your daughter. I'm your son. I'm your son. I'm your son. I've been adopted in the king's family. You have obtained an inheritance in Jesus Christ. All the son has is yours. You are a child of the king. Don't let the world put you down and call you names and lay an identity on you. You loser. They identify you by that sin 30 years ago, by that bad mistake, by your divorce, by an abortion, all these things in your past. The world lays that on you. But God says, I've adopted you. I've chosen you, redeemed you with the blood of my own son. And you're my son. You're my daughter. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, it's good news. I'm about to go to preaching. My word, I'm going to ask Lisa to come. I'm going to ask the music team to come. You're here this morning. You never believed on Jesus Christ. You've never trusted Jesus in the way the Bible says. Why not today? I'm asking you right now to believe on Jesus. Run up in the farms of your father and cry out, I'm your son. Run up in the arms of your father and say, I'm your daughter. And let the blood of Jesus Christ Christ, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He wants to redeem a people for himself, and he wants to save you this morning. And I'm asking you this morning right now to believe on Jesus. Not tomorrow, not next week. I'm right now, right now to believe on Jesus Christ. Every head bowed, every eye closed. You're here and you've never trusted on Jesus in the way the Bible says. I'm going to ask you to do something you may not have been planning to do today. I'm about to sing. I'm going to pray a word of prayer here in a moment. And while I'm praying, I'm done. People will stand and be singing a a, a great old hymn. And while they're singing, I'm going to ask you to step out in the aisle and walk to the front and take me by the hand and say, Brother Allen... I want to believe on Jesus. I want that forgiveness. I want to be adopted into God's family. I want this grace that that overflows. I need those rich grace to flow in my life. And we can pray together and you can be saved. Maybe you're a Christian here and you've been saved for a long time, but the truth be told, you've been struggling with whether or not God had really forgiven you of things. And this morning, you've been reminded that you have been redeemed by his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And perhaps you want to come and pray and thank God for that. Maybe you just have an issue in your heart. You'd like to come pray with me. We'll be here at the front. All aisles in the auditorium lead right down here. You come. I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand and sing. And when we sing, you have a decision to make you come. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ for men and women and boys and girls who need to be saved. And Father, I pray that they would be redeemed. I pray, dear God, that the blood of Jesus would cover their sins. I pray they would have the forgiveness that you offer. And God, that they would feel it and they would know it. Father, thank you for choosing us before we ever chose you. 
thank you, God, that you reign and rule in this world. And God, this morning, as part of your sovereign reign, I pray you would save people this morning. God, I ask it in Jesus' name.